Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Happy holidays from all of us at the DSR Network. As we all spend the holidays with our families, we're bringing you some of the best episodes from the network on some of the biggest events of the year. We hope you enjoy this look back at 2023, and please look forward to another year of Deep State Radio. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I am joined today by two of our most esteemed friends. One, Barbara McQuaid, professor at the University of Michigan School of Law, a regular commentator on MSNBC. I assume you're up in that neck of the woods, Barb, is that correct? I am. I'm in Michigan, and I bring greetings. Well, good to see you. And another esteemed friend, E.J. Dion of the Washington Post, also teaches at Harvard University, and I'm going to guess he's in Washington, D.C. Is that where you are? EJ? I'm in Bethesda, Maryland. Love seeing you. Happy New Year. And it's great to come on your show because I get to be with really cool people like Barbara McQuaid. So thank you. Well, you're both, you're both very cool people. For all our uh, listeners out there who know we have focused this week on making predictions about the year ahead, and I thought the two of you would be great to speak to, both about the future of democracy and uh, the related politics of that on an abstract level and also in the future of legal developments that may make some impact on all of that. EJ, you just had a column in which you said that democracy had a good year in 2022, and you seemed somewhat optimistic about its prospects for 2023. I think that's a good overarching place to start. Am I putting words in your mouth? Are you optimistic about 2023? There's a yes, but in the column, almost, I think I might have even used that language, which is that there is a lot to build on here. Start with Ukraine, the Ukrainian stand against Russian aggression, I think inspired the West. The West, the democracies stayed united, at least the Northern Hemisphere democracies stayed united in support of Ukraine. And I think that combined with the trouble that the Chinese dictatorship has had with COVID doing much worse on it than the democracies did. We had our problems, Lord knows. 
has really begun to still some of that talk that, oh, gee, authoritarian governments are more efficient and effective at solving problems. No, Putin made a brutal evil, really, and gigantic miscalculation, and Xi is facing challenges people did not expect him to face a year ago. And at home, voters in the election, on the whole, it was a complicated result. The Republicans took over the House narrowly. We'll probably talk a bit about that before we're done. But on the whole, voters rejected extremist candidates in the United States in all of the Secretary of State races in uh, swing states. The uh, election deniers lost the election, got quite a few Republican votes, and a lot of other extremist Republicans lost with some Republican votes. So that's all to the good. The challenges here will obviously be for the West to maintain this solidarity because there is, as you have written, David, there's no easy way to see an end to the Ukraine conflict. But it's going to be tough with a Republican House of Representatives where As we speak, Gavin McCarthy is ceding more and more power to a far right in the Republican Party that could make governing difficult. And I am very worried about what happens to us when we confront, say, a need to raise the debt ceiling. Other Republican leaders have ultimately been willing to go to Democrats and say, help us so we don't uh, put our country into financial difficulty. I don't know if Kevin McCarthy or whoever wins the speakership will be in a position to do that. So there are a lot of things I'm worried about, but I think that democracy is better off today than it was a year ago. And I think we've got at least a shot of keeping that world going. Barb, I've talked to you about this. I've listened to you talk about it on TV. One of the important elements of that democracy is the test our legal system is likely to face in the year ahead. I think, and again, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth that I've essentially heard you say this is kind of a pivotal year in the process of the various cases against the former president, the insurrection overall, issues which both have profound implications for our own democracy and which could be triggers for political backlash. Am I right? Do you think this is the pivotal year? And what are your expectations on that front? Are we going to bite the bullet and deal with these issues? Well, if you're talking about filing criminal charges against Donald Trump or other leaders of the plan to thwart the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, I do think this is the year where a decision needs to be made as to whether charges will be filed. And I'll go so far as to say, like, this is the quarter where decisions need to be made about whether charges will be filed. And that's because of the way the criminal justice system works. It has a pretty long tail once you file charges. You go through a whole series of motion practice, discovery, and then a trial. And so, you know, a case that was filed uh, in the early part of this year may not go to trial for well over a year, you know, into the middle part of 2024. And I think if the White House changes hands in 2025, there's a real risk that a new president, whether it's a President Trump, uh, President DeSantis, or otherwise, uh, could pardon everybody involved, could shut down a prosecution. And so, if there is to be a prosecution and an effort to hold accountable all of those who planned the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I think it's got to happen in like the first quarter of, of 2023. You see any signs that's going to happen? Well, you can never predict whether charges will be filed, but there is certainly sign that there's a lot of activity going on. 
I think the report that the January 6th committee produced was absolutely extraordinary. It shows a huge number of facts that the Justice Department can use to put together a potential criminal prosecution. I also think that we've seen some very vigorous use of subpoenas to get documents about what appears to be the false elector scheme. We've seen the Justice Department get search warrants for Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman, which means they have their phones, which can be a treasure trove of information. So I think DOJ is looking very hard, and I think they are giving very serious consideration to criminal charges here. You never know whether they will file them. And you know, I think sometimes people see what we saw on January 6th and say, for the love of God, how could they not file criminal charges? And I get that because there's certainly some information that is deeply disturbing. But keep in mind that the prosecutors have to decide whether they can obtain admissible evidence that can obtain and sustain a conviction. They have to make sure that they are anticipating what a cross-examination of every witness would look like. They have to anticipate what potential defenses might be out there. And also whether they can directly tie Donald Trump or some of his inner circle into these efforts. To me, the most likely charge is either conspiracy to defraud the United States or obstruction of an official proceeding. Those can be brought without tying Donald Trump or his inner circle into the violence that occurred on January 6th. And although certainly Donald Trump is morally responsible for lighting the flame that you know began, what is the phrase, inviting the crowd, fanning the flames, inciting the crowd, I, I think that those other two charges can be proved simply by showing that Donald Trump tried to persuade Mike Pence to abuse his power as vice president in throwing out valid votes. And that was done in broad daylight. He did it in public. He did it in his speech at the Ellipse. He did it on Twitter. And so that those two charges strike me as, I think, quite probable to be brought. So, EJ, as we look ahead to the prospect of that happening, perhaps happening in the next quarter, I think we can rest relatively assured that the executive branch of the U.S. government will handle this the way it should handle it. The president's been very deferential to DOJ. I think the Senate, with Democratic control, probably will handle all this the way it should be handled, leaving it to DOJ. But the developments of the past few days suggest that the House of Representatives, always volatile, is heading in a direction that, that could be at least a distraction. In this regard, we have Kevin McCarthy, who, as of this recording, has what has he lost his seventh attempt to become Speaker of the House. But all the concessions we're hearing about are concessions that are likely to give more power to more radical groups who want to investigate, who may have participated in the insurrection, who are likely to propose defunding the DOJ and so forth. And while they can't do these things because they're the House, not, you know, the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, it could turn into massive political theater, which could actually be inflammatory on a national basis. How do, how do you think this House will handle the kinds of developments Barb's talking about? Short answer is badly. I, I mean, when you look at all of the deals Kevin McCarthy is willing to make with the right, if they ask for a committee to investigate Hunter Biden for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, he'd say, sure, let's uh, let's do that. I mean, it is really scary, the, the concessions he is willing to make. And just now you're starting to see from the less crazy Republicans, 
a little bit of pushback saying, how far is he going to go? We, they, I think, are starting to worry about how the House is going to function. I, I think that's going to be one of the interesting things over the next 24 or 48 hours. Is, is there any pushback against all these giveaways to the far right? So I think they will try to muddy the waters. They're willing to, they, they're talking about investigating the FBI. They're going to talk, I'm sure they're going to go after Merrick Garland or would like to, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people have said Merrick is, Merrick Garland is too cautious. I think his caution will serve him well up to this point because it's much harder for them to make, they can't make any case that Merrick Garland is a partisan prosecutor. Incidentally, I believe, Barbara, you wrote those indictments in an op-ed piece about a year ago, the ones you suggested and, and argued that the case is quite clear. Just parenthetically, I think that I'm curious what Barbara thinks, but I think it's highly likely he gets indicted for the documents case in Mar-a-Lago, and I think it's highly likely he gets indi- uh, indicted in Georgia. And then we'll see about January 6th. But yes, I think they're going to try to do everything they can to muddy the waters. I just don't know what purchase they have on the majority of the American people. I think you know whatever happened in the election, it was quite clear that this is not an electorate that's sympathetic to Donald Trump on the whole. There was I think it was he had a, a disapproval rate of 58% in the electorate that voted that actually gave Republicans control of the House. Given what we saw on January 6th, is it possible there'll be all kinds of incitement? I guess there will be. I just think that you're seeing the fact that Mitch McConnell stood at a bridge with Joe Biden, the new bridge that they're, the bridge they're fixing connecting Kentucky with Cincinnati, suggests that I, I think the Republicans in the Senate, particularly, are very alarmed at what the House is going to do. And they think that this kind of behavior is going to hurt what are their quite good chances as of now of taking over the Senate. So I think you might see more pushback in the Republican Party against the extremists, but they're going to have real institutional power in the House. There's no question. One of the things that strikes me is that if any of these cases, which either of you say are likely to proceed, it's hard to imagine that they can proceed without calling some of the people who are leading the House of Representatives to testify in those cases. A couple of senators might figure in this as well. It's going to make it feel even more political. I can imagine the demonstrations outside the courthouses. I can imagine. And while I'm deeply respectful of you, EJ, and you know, I think you're absolutely right, a fair observer would not call Merrick Garland partisan. I don't think we're talking about fair observers. You know, in other words, they, they, they'll, they'll call him partisan because they want to call him partisan, quite apart from how well, he All I'm behaved. saying, David, I don't disagree with that. All I'm saying is, with, in Merrick Garland's case, it is a particularly hard case to make. And, um, you know, all his defenders have to do is cite all the criticisms of him for not being aggressive enough early on. Yeah, true, but so are Jewish space lasers, um, which, to my knowledge, do not do not exist. But Barb, do, do you do you fear that element of this? You know, there's an effort to keep it apolitical, but at a certain point, it is profoundly political. You know, Merrick Garland took this job and pledged to restore the department's reputation for independence, 
And he has worked, I think, so hard to maintain that and been so circumspect in his remarks. And then you see him testify before the Senate, as he did last year, when he, he issued a memo just suggesting to U.S. attorneys in the field that they work together with their state and local counterparts to protect local public officials against threats and violence and harassment. And to watch the way that those senators twisted that into suggesting he was trying to suppress the First Amendment rights of parents to advance the radical left agenda, I think speaks to both of your points. One is the way in which Merrick Garland has conducted himself, which has been, I think, extremely restrained, but also, David, the extent to which it doesn't make, make much difference. David, you know, I've discussed this here. I'm working on this book on disinformation and it has become a bit of an obsession. So I, I see it through that lens, everything that we talk about. But, you know, one of them, the, the ideas there is that there are all kinds of lies out there and some people are gullible and they believe them. But I think even more, especially the powerful people in Washington, don't believe the lies, but they're willing to use them to advance their political agenda. It, it, is, it is the most cynical abuse of democracy imaginable. And that, I think, is, is the threat that I see to democracy, this willingness to lie, to advance that agenda. And there are people who believe it. I, you know, I talk to people who are moderate Republicans and all they want to talk about is Hunter Biden's laptop. Come on, are you kidding me? I mean, for one, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware is looking into that. If they find crimes, boom, you know, it'll be dealt with. But my gosh, that's the biggest issue. It's uh, because, you know, that that's what they're talking about. And so I do think that there is some concern that if criminal charges are filed, whether it's for January 6th or for the documents, there will be civil unrest in the streets. But that does not mean you can't bring the charge. In fact, perhaps it's a reason why the charge is all the more important to send that signal that this behavior is not acceptable. We've seen convictions of the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy. So it seems that juries are you know, willing to follow the law and the facts here. Certainly the stakes get higher if the defendants are Donald Trump or others in his uh, closer circle. And I think prosecutors have to think, not only do we have the evidence to bring a case, but would it advance a substantial federal interest? And are there collateral consequences that would outweigh any of those things? And so all of that has to go into the mix. And I think they even think about civil unrest, but law professors like to play out hypotheticals to test the validity of an argument. If you don't think you should charge Donald Trump because of the civil unrest that might result for this, is there any crime that you would charge him for? What if he does shoot someone in Fifth Avenue? Would you say we can't charge him because some people might be so angry that they will start a civil war? I, I think you can't let that be the deciding factor. Right. Like if he stole top secret documents and kept them in his basement. You know, <laughs> or something I mean, like that. Yeah, that, right. that would be unimaginable, David. It, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, EJ, all this is going to take place in the context of the first 12 months of 2024. As we all know, in Washington, 2024 is 24 months long. We're in the first month of it. And we're about to enter into positioning. We're already seeing that. The president said he's going to run, a former president. We know Ron DeSantis is making some moves like that. How does all this stuff happening in the background impact, particularly the, the Republican search for candidates? There is absolutely no question that Donald Trump is far weaker today than he was the day before the 2022 election. Because, you know, the Republicans might not turn on Trump for lying. They might not turn on Trump for January 6th, but they definitely would turn on Trump for losing them a bunch of elections that they thought they should have won. 
And you see that in the anger of, uh, you know, particularly Republicans in the Senate. I think that Mitch McConnell appearing with Joe Biden is part of that, where McConnell believes with some reason that Trump stuck the party with some really bad Senate nominees that helped uh, Democrats maintain control of the Senate. There were governorships that the Republicans lost because Trumpist candidates were the Republican nominees. So I think there is a slow turning away from Trump. Again, not on principle. I mean, there are a few principled ones, but most of them have left Congress, actually. But because they know that Donald Trump is becoming an albatross. So then the question becomes, how many Republicans run? Do they split the vote again like they did in 2016 that made it easier for Trump to win the nomination? I think they're much more the anti-Trump wing, you know, is aware of that danger. And I don't mean anti-Trump like the real ones, like uh, Liz Cheney, just the ones who don't want him to be the nominee. And so I think the first question will be, how well does DeSantis wear? Because he is clearly the guy people are turning to in the first instance. I'm not convinced he will wear all that well, but we'll see. You know, I think Youngkin is somebody who can do a lot of what DeSantis does without quite looking like he's doing what DeSantis does. That could uh, be helpful. Those are a couple of people I would keep a very close eye on, obviously. Um, And then there are a bunch of other people who may get in. But I just think that that nomination is far more open than some people do, because I think Republicans are kind of sick of losing, as Donald Trump would be the first to say. I agree with you. And I've written and said this elsewhere, but I will throw in one small prediction for me, and that is that the Republican candidate will be neither Donald Trump nor Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I kind of think that too, which maybe we'll both be wrong, but I I have the same skepticism. Mark Leibovich, I guess, wrote a pretty good piece, I think, making the DeSantis has uh, feet of clay piece. But yeah, I I kind of agree with you. But again, I've been wrong before. So, Barb, we've talked about the executive branch. We've talked about the legislative branch. We've talked about the crazies in the legislative branch of the government and possibly in the street. But the most powerful crazies in the United States are in the third branch of government. And we could get some decisions in the next six months from the Supreme Court that could, for example, empower state legislatures to essentially conduct elections any way they want and in ways that do not bear any resemblance to what we once thought of as democratic and small d and uh, and more what are your expectations for that right wing dominated court in the in the course of the year ahead i'm very concerned about the rule of law and respect for the rule of law and the legitimacy of the courts One of the things that kind of set me off was, did you guys see the end of the year annual report of the judiciary that Chief Justice John Roberts put out? You know, this was, he he puts this thing out every year. It's kind of an opportunity to get on a soapbox and and say something about the judiciary. And I don't know, I had hoped maybe he'd say something about the leak investigation and the court's recent term of overturning a lot of precedents. But no, instead, he just talked about how dangerous it's become to be a judge and isn't that bad and we need more security and woe is us. I thought it was really lacking in self-awareness, which concerns me because, you know, he leads the court. He has a lot of influence on the court. And I do worry that the court is operating now out of sheer power 
as opposed to restraint, which is what it has traditionally done. The Dobbs case really shook me to the core. Regardless of how you feel about the abortion issue, uh, courts have always respected precedent. Certainly from time to time, they overturn precedent, but there are a number of factors they look to when deciding whether that's appropriate, like whether people have relied on the rule, whether you have new understanding of the facts and the law, whether other law has developed in a way such that it is no longer consistent. And none of those factors favored reversing Roe versus Wade. Instead, the court relied on the fact that they thought it was egregiously wrong when it was decided. And that suggests to me that because they have six votes now, they're just going to do whatever they want, regardless of whether there's precedent. You know, a similar case came along, a case called Dickerson, when I was a a newish prosecutor in the 90s, where the Supreme Court had an opportunity to overrule Miranda, the the rule, you know, that says you have to give Miranda warnings, you have a right to remain silent, et cetera. And, And there was a lot of concern that the court was going to overturn that precedent. But ultimately, William Rehnquist, the chief justice, wrote the opinion and said, we're not because we need to respond to precedent. And if you look at all these tests, like, does it work pretty well in practice? And if people come to rely on it, do we have different understanding of the facts in the law? No, we're not writing on a clean slate. And therefore, we are going to respect this precedent and we're going to uphold it. We are not seeing that same kind of judicial humility today. And so I do worry about what may come next just because they can. Very, very worrisome. At this point in the show, we, we say goodbye to the folks in the general public who've been listening to us, and we encourage them to go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, becoming become members. Uh, we're about to uh, uh, launch a, a, an even broader slate of additional products for members, different levels of membership. Uh, keep an eye out for that because it's going to be a whole variety of products, including some that are interactive, customizable, and provide you with real access to some of the best experts that there are out there. So keep an eye on that. For those of you who are already members, you'll get the benefit of the next part of this show in just a moment. EJ, as we look ahead to next year, we are seeing the third year of the Biden administration. The first two years were vastly more productive legislatively and internationally than I think anybody had any reason to predict. And it looks like, because the House is going to make it almost impossible to get anything done, the year ahead is going to be focused on implementation. The ceremony you spoke of yesterday, which took place at the border of Kentucky and Ohio, was truly bipartisan, the Republican governor of Ohio, Democratic state senators from Ohio, Mitch McConnell, Democratic governor of of Kentucky, et cetera. Can he just do that for a year, implement, not really get other stuff done, and tee up a re-election campaign? And what are your thoughts on a re-election campaign? Just to take one step back, I think we it's it's very easy to underplay the importance of what happened in the first uh, two years. Biden was more aggressive in pushing our economy in new directions than any president has been uh, for a long time. I, you know, I think almost of the TVA under uh, FDR, because if you look at the investments in infrastructure, which include things other than roads and bridges. If you look at the investments in chips and tech and science, and then if you look at the big investments in green energy to fight climate change, all of it is about creating 
different sorts of well-paying, often manufacturing jobs to make up for the loss of the old-fashioned manufacturing jobs. So he has really taken a big step toward pushing the economy in a new direction. And I think that gives him both a lot of responsibility and a lot of opportunities in 2023 to show, because only now will all this be implemented. And I think, by the way, progressives need to pay a lot of attention to implementation and how government works, because they argue, I think correctly, that government can do a lot to make our lives better and the economy work better, but they got to prove it can work. And I think Biden is very aware of that. I think he is going to try to push some initiatives. And I think he and Schumer in the Senate are going to try to challenge the Republicans in the House by taking action in certain areas. I could imagine some activity on housing. I could imagine some activity around family policy, whether it's family leave or childcare or pre-K and the child tax credit. And I think that my own view is that the Democrats, if they're smart, will create a substantial agenda for young people. Young people are coming into, have come into a very complicated economy, Americans under 30 or under 35. And they should be thinking about what are the challenges facing the next generation in. And some of this stuff will be popular. And so then the question will be, will the House want to be the graveyard for all of these uh, all these proposals. And, you know, the last thing is just that appearance with McConnell, I keep coming back to, it's going to be very interesting. McConnell wants to take the Senate in 2024. And it's very possible he has the idea that Republicans will have a better chance to do that if they are not pure obstructionists. So I think it's going to be very intriguing to see how he plays this game with Biden, which would only increase the pressure on the Republican House. Yeah, as you know, I'm a, a starry-eyed optimist about most things that go on in Washington. And uh, there is a narrative that I, I kind of buy into, that Biden tuned out Beltway Buzz, tuned out Trump, essentially, and focused on governing. And it served him well in the election. And that I think if you look at governors across the United States, the ones who are successful did the same thing. Your governor in Michigan being an example of Barbara, but in Colorado, in California, in Kentucky, in North Carolina, in New Jersey. And, you know, there are a bunch of governors in Pennsylvania. Uh, a good one left. A good one has come in. And, I, you know, I have this kind of sense, this hope that we may be past the era of, of noise and drama and we may be going back to an era where you like boring government that builds bridges. And I mean, that, you know, sometimes, you know, it's early in the year and um, I've had the flu the past couple of days, so this could be the medication speaking. And and by the way, who, when did this happen that we entered the, you know, sort of, if it's Tuesday, I must have a new virus phase of life in America. You know, I mean, it's every, every, every month there's some new plague upon us, but um Barb, having said that, I'm not completely a starry-eyed optimist. And one of the areas goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning. The House of Representatives is going to undertake an investigation into the January 6th committee's investigation. They're going to consider defunding the Department of Justice. They're undoubtedly going to start 
calling in Garland and, and others and challenging them on many of these developments. I don't think we've seen that kind of thing, certainly not in a while. It strikes me as potentially extremely damaging. What do you expect? What are you concerned about? I expect a clown show. I mean, look at the seven votes. Who knows how many we'll be up to before we get a Speaker of the House. Certainly, oversight of government is appropriate. We want to make sure that funds are being spent appropriately, that our government is not abusing its power, and that is appropriate to the extent Congress wants to have those kinds of hearings, you know, have at it. But I suspect there's more at work there. You know, some of the things they're talking about is impeaching Merrick Garland, you know, as we, we said earlier. My God, for what? And as you said, they'll find something for the way he's handled Hunter Biden's laptop. And all of those things, you know, think about the Benghazi hearings when they went on and on trying to turn a tragic attack into some sort of State Department scandal. And so I can imagine we'll do uh, more of that. And what concerns me about that, David, is, you know, not only is it a waste of time, but it also damages our national security. The time that Congress is spending without a speaker leaves us in great peril. If we were to come under attack while we don't have a leader, we don't have a Congress right now. They haven't been sworn in. They cannot declare war. They couldn't have meetings of uh, the Intelligence Committee. That puts us at a vulnerability to our national security. It also demonstrates to enemies of democracy that democracy doesn't work. Look at these clowns. They they can't pull off a democracy. There's no way to govern. You can't get anything done in a democracy because everybody has a different opinion about how it needs to be done. That's why we need authoritarians to have someone who's boss to make these decisions. That's where people will be happy and government will work effectively. So it's harming us and it's harming democracy around the world when people just engage in these self-interested political clown shows. I'll I'll, I'll leave it. (laughs) I'll use that as as the milder term. Uh, for what I think is occurring. What do you think, EJ? Do you think Americans are going to just tune it out as a clown show? You know, I was just thinking maybe it does them too much justice to call it a clown show because good clowns are authentically funny and uh, only occasionally is this authentically funny. But I think Americans have tuned out a good deal of this over time. A majority of Americans, again, I think we are so polarized. I think there's a pretty hard 25, 30% of Americans on the right wing who, you know, take a lot of what some of the extremists say quite seriously. Uh, You know, the real hardcore extremes in the country are smaller than that, but I think they have an audience that reaches about 25 or 30%. That's not most of us. Just on Barb's point about, you know, authoritarian government works better, the the fear that that's what people are going to start thinking. I do think the authoritarians have done a heck of a job over the last couple of years making the case that no, authoritarianism doesn't work very well, which we should be grateful for. But as Barb suggests, that means we ought to double down and try to make our own our own government work. Yeah, I think it's going to be really, really difficult because of the House and because of what the House is going to do and what it won't do. Again, I'm petrified about the debt ceiling, where if you don't act on that, you could cause so much economic chaos, both in the United States and around the world. And in the past, people like when one of the nominators for Kevin McCarthy said today, well, he's no John Boehner. And I listened to him and I said, and that scares the heck out of me because John Boehner, whatever his weaknesses, knew at a certain point he had to go to Nancy Pelosi and get some Democratic votes to keep the country 
from falling apart completely. And I don't think Kevin McCarthy has the ability to do that. And that genuinely scares me. I can't resist asking, Barb, you're doing a deep dive into disinformation. And I think that's been an issue that has evolved over some time. I I sent you an article I did the other day on how information security is different from cybersecurity. Information security is something that we have to worry about a lot. It has to do with who owns platforms, what's on platforms, how are platforms regulated, how are they regulated country to country, what efforts exist covertly, what efforts exist overtly, and so on and so forth. What is the, on the horizon for that? Do you worry more? Does the Elon Musk takeover of Twitter worry you more? Does something else you know, on the horizon, TikTok or something, worry you more? I'm just, I'm just worried because clearly as you do your research, you have to be thinking about that. Yeah. You know, the internet, social media, all of these uh, technological innovations are incredible tools, but they are also weapons. And so people have learned to weaponize them. And I think that there'll always be somebody who's one step ahead of the technology and, and the regulation. So, you know, these bots and trolls and other things that we find online, there'll always be somebody out there. But I, I think, number one, we should do more in terms of regulating social media. Um, it, it's, it's, we've gone from its infancy to its adolescence. And like all adolescents, it's having some growing pains. And I think it's hard. It's hard to, to know how to regulate information without regulating speech. But I think there's some things we can do. For example, as you know, Francis Hoggins was the Facebook whistleblower who talked about it's not the content, it's the algorithms, stupid. The algorithms that, that push you to content that outrages you, that pushes you to violent conduct, that pushes you toward paid conduct or content, that's the stuff that I think could be regulated. And it, it is difficult, but I think we need to be able to do the difficult work. Uh, sometimes you see at these congressional hearings, the uh, members of Congress with their eyes glazing over because they can't keep up with the technology. Well, that's why you enlist experts and staff to try to come up with some meaningful solutions. But I think there will always be those who are looking for the next way to manipulate the people. And that's where I think we need to have leaders and citizens who exercise some responsibility. Yeah, I think a huge part of the disinformation campaign is not so much about believing the lies. It's about trying to advance a worldview of an America of the past, one that is dominated by a certain race, a certain gender, a certain religion, and by sort of stoking fear of these global elites who are trying to change the world and replace us. You know, that's the fear. And, and that's what, what is so irresponsible about leadership, focusing on culture wars instead of kitchen table issues. And so we, the voters, I think, have the power to insist and hold our leaders accountable when they engage in that sort of cultural warfare instead of the business of government, which is solving problems for the people. Uh, but I was interested, as a last word here, EJ, your take on Barb's take. There. Well, first of all, I can't wait for Barb's book. And what I really want you to do, David, is invite Barb on with another of my favorite law professors, who is Martha Minow up at Harvard, who has written a very interesting book called Saving the News, which uh, talks about the First Amendment as creating an obligation to create a workable media system for a democracy. And I'd love to see a dialogue between them. I suspect you'd agree on a lot, but it would. Martha's book is really worth looking at in trying to think about how do we deal with the new information environment we're in. And you know, the only other thing I'll say is it is very tricky to figure out the right structure of regulation. 
because we want a regulatory regime that preserves free exchange, free speech, but we also want a regulatory regime that gives access broadly to good information. And occasionally those two kind of run up against each other. And how we deal with that dilemma is the one that Barbara's going to solve in her book. So I can't uh, wait to wait to see it. Yeah, either, either can I. In fact, we're so enth- enthusiastic here. We are uh, offering uh, advanced previews and other books you should read. And I would say if, if you didn't catch it, Yesterday, we did a version of the podcast with Josh Kralancic from the Council on Foreign Relations on his book on Chinese efforts in, in disinformation, which he has just come out with, and how they're expanding those and how they're working and how they're not working. And it's just another piece of the puzzle. So you might want to take a look at that. I always learn from listening to the two of you. I, th- I think it's been great to have you on here together. Candidly, I feel little better about 2023 than I did when we started out, I'm apprehensive perhaps, but I've been apprehensive for 60-ish years. So thank you. Thank you, EJ. Thank you, Barb. Thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll be back with you again at all the usual times next week. Bye-bye.